I'd like to draw your attention to the book of Psalms, specifically Psalm 24. <clears throat> in most of your Bibles, the book of Psalms is dead set in the middle of your Bible. So if you open it up there, you'll likely start in the right spot. And we are going to be looking this morning at Psalm 24 in the fourth and final sermon in our short series on the coming Messiah. Now, if you hear that and say, but pastor, Christmas is already over. And I say, exactly. Because we are going to look this morning at the Messiah who is our great king and who is coming once again. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask, O Lord, that you would open up your word to us. That in your word we might see the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we might know our Savior better. That we might be driven with a great love for Him. That we might see Him in all of His glory. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we have looked this past month during our Advent season, at the coming Messiah. Christmas is the season that focuses on the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born into the world to save his people from their sins. That's what we are told the name Jesus means. We were told that by the angel in Matthew's gospel, that Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. Jesus was prophesied centuries before his birth 
we saw Isaiah tell us about his name and about his character. And then we celebrated along with Joseph, Mary, and the angels the story of his birth. But the Christmas story is just the beginning. And so it is fitting that New Year's follows Christmas. Because Christmas introduces us to the Messiah, the one who has come to put all things right and to rule over his creation. This morning we will look at the Messiah who is yet to come, the Messiah King. And so this psalm that we look at this morning, Psalm 24, is the third in a trio of psalms that talk about the work and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 22 describes the work of sacrifice that our Lord performs in atoning for sin. It is often called the psalm of the cross. And then Psalm 23, that famous psalm of the Lord as our shepherd, as he guides his people, is often called the psalm of the crook. Now, if you don't know what a crook is, it's not a bank robber. It is the wooden implement that a shepherd uses to guide and tend to his sheep. And you know how preachers are. They have to have points that begin with the same letter. So we have the psalm of the cross, the psalm of the crook, and then we come now to Psalm 24, which is often called the psalm of the crown. Because it describes the Lord Jesus Christ as the coming king, as the Messiah who is king over all. It is a picture of the mighty Messiah King. It shows us whom Jesus has come to be. He is not a Messiah that we simply observe or look at. He is the Messiah that rules over all things. And so this morning, I would like us to see three things about our King. First, that Jesus is our sovereign King. Second, that Jesus is our delivering king. And then third, that Jesus is our glorious king. Our sovereign king, our delivering king, our glorious king. The psalmist begins Psalm 24 in a very appropriate fashion. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. It's an appropriate opening because it describes the power of the Messiah King. That he is sovereign, and first and foremost, that he is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over the earth, the psalmist tells us. But then he also tells us over the fullness of the earth. Now the word here that is used for fullness could be translated this way. All that is in it. So, the Messiah King is sovereign over not only the earth itself, but all that it contains. And he is not just in charge of this. He owns it. And and that's an important distinction, I think. Because many of us are familiar with what it means to be in charge of someone or something without owning it. Perhaps the best example are families. When your children are young... You as parents are in charge of them. They don't get to do virtually anything without your permission. But you do not own them. There will come a day 
in which they will grow up into adults, leave your home, and establish their own home. You are not in charge of them perpetually forever. There is a period of time in which you have authority over them. But not so the Lord God. He is eternally over all of the earth and all that is in it. There is nothing that is outside the sway of the Lord. Even things that we think are anti-God are under His sway. Paul understood this well. When he was writing to the church at Corinth about a controversy about food, Paul quotes this psalm. You may remember the controversy. There was an occasion in which people within the church were not certain whether they could eat meat that had been sacrificed to pagan idols. They thought that somehow this would be unholy or wrong because unbelievers had sacrificed this meat to idols and that had tainted it forever. And Paul quotes this verse, Psalm 24.1, that says that the earth and all its fullness is the Lord's. To tell the church that even things that people determine are against God, He is still over. There is no escaping His sovereignty. Now, this is contrary to what we see in the world because the world is full of rebellion against God. It's full of those who set up their own kingdoms and think that their kingdoms will last forever, that they will last longer than their own lifetime. But we know this is not the case from history, don't we? The Persians thought they would rule forever until they were replaced by the Greeks under Alexander the Great. The Greeks thought that they would rule the world forever until they were replaced by the Romans. In Jesus' day, the Romans ruled over the known world, and it was almost impossible to think of a place where they did not hold sway, where you didn't have to pay taxes, where you weren't under their authority. And now what is Rome? It's a tourist attraction. It's a coliseum that's half falling apart, and people go and look and see what the grandeur of Rome was like, but is no longer. You see, the kingdoms of man are not eternal. There is no real and true sovereignty. Only the Lord God has this kind of sovereignty. I think perhaps the best example of the vanity of human sovereignty is found in a poem by Percy Bysshe Shelley called Osmandius. It goes like this. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed And on the pedestal, these words appear, My name is Osmandius, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. What Shelley is getting at in this poem is this king 
fictional though he may be, is like so many real kings who felt that his reign would be eternal and forever and that his power would know no end. And this declaration of might and power occurs in the midst of nothing, of sand, of the complete destruction of everything that he thought was important. Not so the Lord our God. He is sovereign over all the earth and its fullness. But it's not just things that Jesus rules over. All the people are his also. Look at the second half of verse 1. The world and those who dwell therein. Now the psalmist uses a different word here from earth. He uses the word world to carry the connotation of the inhabitants of the world. And this is important because it highlights who Jesus is and what he came to do. Now notice how comprehensive the psalmist is. Jesus does indeed have a special relationship with his people, but he is sovereign over everyone. This is important. It should affect the way that we think and talk about Jesus to others. Jesus is not a weak savior. He is not a weak king. He is sovereign over every single person in the world. A man is always striving to declare his independence from God. Unbelievers rebel against God. They act as if Jesus is a fairy tale or someone who is not needed. He's only for the weak. But try how he might, man cannot escape the fact of Jesus' sovereignty. It is indeed a fact. Those who rebel against Jesus are like those who are criminals, who run from the law, or like those who seek to set up a pretend country so that they can get out from under the authority of the land in which they live. But the reality is, each of us knows that even our very breath comes from God. And so, for the Christian, this is a great comfort. The world is not spinning out of control. Did you wake up this morning worried about Iran, or terrorist attacks, or war, or perhaps your job, that you could support your family in this year of 2020, or your health, or your relationships? Does it seem like the world is coming apart at the seams? Well, don't let that be your thought. Because the world is held together by King Jesus. He is sovereign over everything and over everyone. And so this is a great comfort for the Christian. And Jesus knows our frame. You see, you do not need to put on an act for Jesus. You don't need to pretend that you've got it all together and that you're always confident and that everything is fine because Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 103, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the grass. Jesus is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over all people. And he is sovereign because he has created all things. He is the sovereign creator. The psalmist tells us in verse 2, For he has founded it, that is the earth, upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. 
Jesus is the one who has created all things. He has established all things. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now this is specifically true of Jesus. We can lose sight of that in the Christmas season. Because during the Christmas season, we are fascinated with the meekness and the humility of Jesus. How he came as a baby. How he lived as a child. How he obeyed his parents. How he grew in wisdom and stature. But this Jesus is the same one who is so much more than a baby, so much more than the leader of 12 disciples. He is equal in power and glory to the Father and the Spirit. As a matter of fact, John opens his gospel in the first chapter with a conscious echo of Genesis chapter 1, stating that Jesus is the creator of all things. He writes, all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Now, even the grammar of that's difficult to get your arms around, isn't it? Because John is trying to be as comprehensive as he can possibly be. He's saying there's not anything in existence that was not made by Jesus. He needed no help. He needed no assistance. He's the one who has created all things. And The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 1 that Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. So not only did Jesus create the world, he upholds it now. Do you know that the sun rises in the morning because of Jesus? Do you know that the seasons change and the tides come in and out because of the power of Jesus? Do you see the power of the storms in the world? Do you see the immensity of the moon and the stars. All of that exists because of Jesus. Well, next the psalmist moves to two questions in verse 4. He tells us that Jesus is not only our sovereign king, but he is our delivering king. And he does this by asking a question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? What the psalmist is asking is, who can stand before a great and mighty Lord? How is it possible to approach the sovereign king of the universe? And the answer the psalmist gives to us in verse 4 is one of perfection. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And so you might ask yourself, who can meet this stand, this status of perfection? The answer of perfection strikes fear in the heart of the self-righteous. Someone who thinks that they are good enough to stand before God hears the answer to the question of the psalmist and is undone. Because after all, who has never been deceitful? Who has never placed some idol whether it was your own desire or money or possession or family before God. Who among men can truly say that they are pure of heart? We would die in despair if only the self-righteous could come before the Lord. It's not just a comprehensive standard. It's a perfect standard. Now, you know instinctively that you are not perfect. 
After all, it's one of the most famous sayings that we use. Nobody's perfect. All I have to do is ask you to think back to your resolutions of 2019 and ask you to list out all of the ones that you've given up on or failed. You might even be in the position where I'm in, knowing that I've made resolutions, knowing I'm going to fail in 2020. I'll give it a good effort, but I know I'm not perfect. I know I can't meet that standard. Right now, at the beginning of a new year, is often a time when we think about the regrets that we have. Things that we wish we'd done differently. Things that we wish we could do over. You and I are not the ones described by the psalmist in verse 4. But our hope does not come from our ability. It comes from our King. King Jesus. Our delivering King. The standard is met. It is met in the one who always obeyed. That's why Jesus became man. That's why he was born under the law, the Bible tells us. Jesus lived the perfect life that you could not and cannot. Jesus never deceived. He never worshipped an idol. He always had a pure heart. Even when tempted by Satan himself, He obeyed the law of God. And so we then receive all of the benefits that Christ gained for us. The psalmist describes these benefits in verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Jesus is the one who starts, continues, and finishes our salvation. Jesus is the one who purchases what we cannot, who obtains what is beyond our measure. Well, how does Jesus' kingship save us? I think first and foremost, we must remember that Jesus subdues us to himself. That is, we are lost in sin. We don't know the way to go. We don't know how to get to God. We don't even know that we are truly rebels against God and His Word. And so we're lost, wandering around. But here comes King Jesus. He will not be stopped. He will save His people. He will bring them out of darkness and into light. From death to life. He fights your battles for you. Earthly kings, on the other hand, compel their subjects to suffer and go to war on their behalf. But Jesus Christ has suffered for his people. What a glorious king we serve who has paved the way to heaven for us. He defeats all our enemies and that includes our own sin. Jesus is the Messiah King who will not allow our sin to stand in the way between us and God. What we cannot defeat, Jesus does. In verse 6, we see that all the difference is made by the heart. That Jesus comes seeking and finding with a delivering love. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. 
Now, to the unbeliever, these words sound like nails on a chalkboard. But to the believer, there is no sweeter sound. We seek out Jesus because he has first sought out us. We must never forget that Jesus has come to earth as God's Messiah, to do what we could not. And he does this out of love for his people. And the Messiah does not just come to save his people. He comes to bring them to himself. He makes them his own. The Bible teaches the great doctrine of justification, which is how we are made right with God. But we cannot forget that the Bible also teaches the great doctrine of adoption. That is, that by being made right with God, we are also brought into the family of God. It's not just that we are not guilty. It's not just that we escape the punishment. No, we are gathered together to God to be a part of his family. Peter puts it well in chapter 2 of his first letter. He's describing the people of God and he says they are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. But he doesn't stop there. He says they are also a people for God's own possession. You see, Jesus, the Messiah King, has come to deliver you, not just so that you might be free from your sins, but so that you might be His forever. That you might be His possession. That He might preserve you By looking at the glory of God, we see not only His glory, but we see the glory of what He has done for us. He is a strong and capable deliverer. Now, the psalmist describes Jesus not only as our sovereign king and as our delivering king, but he also describes Him as our glorious king. If we had any question as to what kind of a king we serve, the psalmist answers it in verses 7 through 10. He asks, who is this king of glory? Not once, but twice. And if we had any question about who it is, the answer resounds, he is from everlasting. He is strong and mighty. He is the king of glory. And this, after all, is what we expect to see after having the Messiah described for us by Isaiah, after having the Messiah praised by the angels. But that's also why so many were confused to see Jesus in his birth and earthly ministry. They expected to see the glorious king immediately. But this is the Messiah who is yet to return. He is glorious and he will be honored as he deserves. And so the psalmist tells the gates and the doors to open up so that the king of glory might come in. You might think in your mind's eye of an epic film set in the Middle Ages in a giant hall filled with people. And there are heralds running down the aisle with trumpets and they blast out a note of triumphal entry. And the doors fling open and the king comes in. And everyone who sees the king bows before him, kneels before him. That's what's happening here. The king of glory, King Jesus, 
is here. And so the psalmist asks this question, who is this king of glory? Now this is what we call a rhetorical question. It's a question that the person asking it already has the answer to it. The question's being asked so the answer can be provided. Let me give you an example of this. Have you ever had a bargain hunter come up to you and say, how much do you think I paid for this? Now they know full well how much they paid for it. They're waiting for you to say, I don't know, tell me. So they can say exactly how much it costs. Or perhaps a sports fanatic will say, who's the greatest baseball player ever? Now, as soon as you hear that question, you know they have an answer in mind. And you may have an answer, but they don't really care about your answer. They want to give you their answer. It's a rhetorical question. Or we might think about a philosopher who says, what's the most important thing in life? This isn't a poll. There's an answer ready. And when the psalmist writes, who is this king of glory? He asks to tell you who Jesus the Messiah king is. And he begins by describing the power and the majesty of King Jesus. That Jesus is not dependent on anyone. He is strong and mighty. He is mighty in battle. Now once again, we can be confused because of the humble origin of Jesus. As a child, he was dependent upon his parents to feed him and to clothe him and to teach him. He did grow in knowledge and stature. But that was for a purpose, only for a time. When Jesus returns, it will be in power and in glory. And Jesus does not need you or me to make him king. He is the powerful and mighty Messiah King. He is the great I Am. The one who said to Ezekiel, I am the Lord, I speak, and the word which I speak will come to pass. The one who said to Isaiah, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. This is the Lord who fights for you, who defends you, who has conquered death and hell for you. Martin Luther said it so much better than I could in his favorite hymn. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. (coughs) Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Lord Sabaoth, that Luther calls King Jesus, means the Lord of hosts. And that's what our king is. That's how the psalmist describes him. (coughs) The psalmist concludes with an important description of the Messiah King. He calls him the King of Glory. That there is no one like this king. He is glorious in and of himself. That is why at his birth, people sought him out to worship him. That's why Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that all the angels of God worship him. That's why John, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, when he sees Jesus in all of his glory, falls down as dead and worships Jesus. The Messiah King is worthy of worship. He is glorious in and of himself. 
This is the great Messiah King who came to earth and became a man. The story of Christmas is the story of God breaking into the world to show His glory and to redeem for Himself a people. We must never lose the wonder of the Christmas story. But we must also never lose our sense of awe and worship at who Jesus is. He is the King of glory. He is the Messiah who has come. And the Messiah who is coming again. Let's pray.